0: We're fearful of taking away hope. And I think first of all, if we enter into these conversations authentically, compassionately, with a posture of non-judgmental listening, then I don't think we take away people's hope.
1: Welcome to Transcending Home Care. Stan Massey of Transcend Strategy Group holds vital discussions with other experts on insights and ideas to help providers succeed in the ever-changing landscape of home-based health care. For more than 18 years now, Stan has helped providers of senior care and home-based care build their brands to increase referrals, admissions, staff retention, and performance scores. This episode features a conversation with special guest, Tim Short, M.D. Dr. Short is an associate professor of palliative care at the University of Virginia Medical Center. With more than 30 years as a practicing physician, Dr. Short has developed a deep passion and compassion for leading meaningful conversations with families coping with a serious illness In this session, Dr. Short shares very practical yet profound advice on turning difficult conversations with patients and families into productive personal goals of care discussions.
2: Thanks so much for joining me on this podcast episode, Tim. I asked you to be my guest because during my entire career in healthcare consulting, I've really never met anyone with better bedside manner and rapport with families as you, and I think your perspective as a physician on having difficult conversations with patients and families is really valuable for our audience. Thank you for those kind words. It's great to be with you, Stan. Let's start with a cultural question. Why do you think most of us, especially doctors and other clinicians in the medical field, are so afraid or hesitant to discuss bad news with patients and their families?
0: You know, There's actually some data in the literature on that. Several years ago at one of the large oncology meetings, there was a room full of 500 or so oncologists, and they asked just that question of what gives you hesitation for sharing bad news with your patients? What might make you hesitate? And, in the end, and they gave them a list of answers, and the, all the oncologists in the room had little clickers so they could answer and they could tabulate. And the number one reason was a fear of taking away hope from their patients and their families. And I think it underscores that there's a real um, sacred relationship between physicians and their patients that um, can, can sometimes get in the way when transitions of care need to occur. And I think we need to be aware of that. I think we need to step out of that sometimes if it's not serving the patient's best interest.
2: Well, that makes total sense. I guess physicians and clinicians are human beings too, right? Yeah, yeah. How do you think clinical experts can overcome this point of view? I think the
0: first step is awareness um, and recognition of kind of their own feelings, their own hopes, their own fears on their side of the relationship. And then secondly, I think they need to be comfortable and some training in how to have difficult conversations Most of us haven't had training on that, and it's now starting to be employed in medical schools and medical training and residency training, but an older generation of physicians has figured it out on their own or not, and that can become a barrier.
2: Yeah, I see. Well, in talking to other physicians, they feel optimistic, too, about better training going on at the medical school level, so we'll hope that's a trend that continues. When you have to talk to a family when the prognosis isn't good, what have you found to be the keys to having better conversations and maybe turning it from bad news to successful goals of care type conversations?
0: I'd start by answering kind of that issue of hope, which is a, a big barrier for why we hesitate to have these conversations. We're fearful of taking away hope. And I think, first of all, if we enter into these conversations authentically, compassionately, with a posture of non-judgmental listening, then I don't think we take away people's hope. People's greatest fear when they're faced with serious illness really is the fear of the unknown. And sometimes stepping into that dark space of the unknown and shedding light on it and giving boundaries and and what are the most likely outcomes actually can give people more hope rather than take away hope. And the literature would support that. Studies have sh- shown that as well. I think the second thing that's really foundational for meaningful and healing conversations is that we, the healthcare team, need to go into those without an, an agenda. I know as a palliative doctor, I get attached agendas when I get asked to see people all the time by the referring clinician or team. Can you get this patient's code status changed? Can you get this family to understand how serious this is? They kind of were looking for me to do a Jedi mind trick and move them to a position that the team thinks they should be on. And boy if you go in with an agenda like that you really make your work more difficult and you really reduce the likelihood of a good outcome. I think what's really important is that you go in with no agenda but their agenda. That you kind of, and I do that almost ceremonially every time I go into a family meeting, we all wash our hands. And I use that time to pause and to say to myself, let go of your agenda, let go of others' agendas, and be fully present to this family and this patient's agenda. And I think that is another really critical piece to having successful family meetings and honest conversations.
2: That sounds like a very good practice. Give us some insight to your approach to some of the logistics. Who should be involved in a family meeting? Where is it best to take place? And what type of material do you go over with the family?
0: So I think the first part of who should be involved is an important piece, and it's overlooked quite a bit, it's really simply because of the fragmented system that we work in and the busy schedules we all hold. My experience is these family meetings are best done interprofessionally. Fundamental to the success of a family meeting is establishing trust. And I like to try to find who this family trusts or this patient trusts the most. And I physically like to be beside them. I like to kind of associate because I'm often coming in cold and as a stranger so uh, when you ask a team an interprofessional team about that it's not uncommon that it's the nurse um, they've been at the bedside they've attended the suffering they've had deep conversations this family has learned to trust them over time and they're really important to have present at those conversations because they can speak to those things sometimes it's the chaplain because this family is really making their decisions through perhaps a faith basis. Sometimes it's the primary oncologist or the family doctor of 20 years. And they're really sometimes hard to get into these conversations because they often occur in the hospital and those people are um, 15 miles away or in in, in the case like at, at the University of Virginia, sometimes they're 200 miles away. But reaching out to them Talking to them on the phone or connecting them in the room via a speaker phone can be really, really helpful. So the composition of the team meeting with the family is really important. And how do you know who that should be? Well, I think the most important way to know is to ask the family. Who do you think you'd like to have at an important conversation from our team? In the same way, we ask them who do you want to have from your family present? So we try to get the important players present both on the family
2: side as well as on the team side. Those are really good insights about who to involve from the family, but how do you involve the entire interdisciplinary team in preparing for a family meeting to make sure you're covering all the essentials and you're all on the same page?
0: I um, think the success of a family meeting then Once you get the right composition, really then gets shaped by how good the huddle is by the team prior to the family meeting. I've been in family meetings where there's been no huddle, and we all enter the room, sometimes various disciplines, um, services, nephrology, cardiology, neurology, and they're discovering in the room in front of the patient and family that they have differing views. And that's catastrophic for the family. Um, The family really needs, in complex situations like this, a unified front and message from the team. So the huddle before that to look at, okay, where are we going to meet? Are we going to meet in the room because the patient's decisional, or are we going down the hallway where the family might be more free to speak? what is our understanding of the, of the team about the patient's condition, about the patient's prognosis, about the treatment options we might offer going forward? Let's make sure we're on the same page ourselves before we try to get a family on the same page. And then who's going to conduct this meeting? Who's going to lead it? How's it going to flow? How's it going to go? So the, the, the huddle, in my experience, is a really strong predictor to how well a family meeting is going to go. They tend to go as well as the
2: huddle goes. Earlier, you talked about not going in with an agenda. What are some other mistakes you've made or seen regarding family meetings? And what is your advice to avoid those mistakes?
0: I attend a lot of family meetings. I sometimes lead them myself. And oftentimes, I'm a guest at the side of a primary team. Sometimes it's a heart failure team. Sometimes it's an oncology team urology, etc. Often it, these, these conversations occur in the ICU setting. And the most common model kind of looks like this. The team walks in with a trail of long coats to short coats, surround the patient and family in the room, and then they start to talk, and they explain and update the patient's condition. Sometimes they do a good job of, of, of speaking in an understandable language that the family and the patient can relate to. Sometimes they just go into medical jargon. And at the end of their update, they step back, fold their arms and say, what do you want to do? So there's this information dump and then a question and a complete shift of burden for the decision to the patient and family and I think there's a a better way to do that and in arriving and at processing the information and the decisions at hand together you know you walk into the room and the patients on the far side of the room and the far side of the bed and you're on the other side of the bed and the elephant in the room is their loved one has a very limited life expectancy they're really facing and at a critical intersection and what we tend to do is stand on the other side of the bed and talk across the elephant at the room to the family to say, can't you see this? Won't you see this? Let me explain it again. Let me go through this and and try to get them to see things as we see things. And what happens when you, there's good intentions in that approach from the team But it sets the team almost at an adversarial position to the family, toe to toe, um, trying to get them to see your point of view. People are often paralyzed in this situation. And in order to get them to move out of their fear and out of the overwhelming complexity of this, you have to join them first where they are before you can lead them to a different space or together journey to a different answer.
2: Tell us more about the importance of listening first and then using language that will better connect with the family. What are some of the types of questions that you start with to help families express what they're feeling in their own words?
0: So oftentimes what we find in the the need for these conversations is, you know, we've, we've said to a family now for sometimes months, sometimes years, look, here's your disease process and here's your treatment. Now you build your life around that. And they do that, and they do that as a family. And that makes sense, and it's a good model as long as that quality of life and depth and breadth of life is acceptable to them. But as diseases progress and people become more frail and more vulnerable, that model doesn't work any longer. They, because the, the the life that they're building around their treatment and their disease process is diminishing and getting smaller and smaller and becomes dwarfed by the medicalization of their quality of life. So that model needs to get turned upside down. And we we need to say to patients, what's important to you and to your family? And let's build your treatment around that. It's an upside down, inside out shift in the paradigm. So when I start with these family meetings, I have a simple framework that I approach. It goes from who, to what, to where. And the starting of the who might sound something like this. When I come in to meet a family, I might say something like, you know, I've been looking at your mother's chart for the last 30 minutes. I've talked to all her consultants. I've reviewed all her scans and all her labs. I know a lot about your mom's medical condition, but I don't know who she is and what's important to her. Do you think we could start on that note? Can you tell me a little bit about your mom, who she is and what's important to her? And when you do this, you often get tears especially in the ICU where we break people down into organ systems and treat them as such, you're now talking to them about their mom because their language, their perspective, their decision process is not a pros and cons, burden and benefit comparison like we tend to look at things. They're looking at this as how do we love mom? How do we honor mom? do we respect her wishes and advocate for her heart here in this space? So they're looking at it in a very different perspective and with a very different language. And if you start with that, where you start with who is your mom, you now get vignettes and stories. Oh, mom, every Sunday she'd have us over for lunch and she made the best this night. You start getting little stories and a picture of who this person is and what their values. Values are and importantly you shift the language from medical language or medical lay-aside language to the family's language and you get them talking and not the team talking we know from outcome studies on these conversations that the more the family talks the better the outcome from the family's perspective so for me this is one of the most effective ways to start speaking the language that the family's speaking and listening to kind of what's important to them and what's important to this patient. Well, the other reason why I like to start with who is it becomes very important at the end of these meetings if sometimes a family is stuck. Sometimes when you process this and you listen and you come together around all the information and you're trying to figure a a way forward together, They really don't know what to do. They really don't know what their mother would want in this setting. That's when I might ask, would you like my recommendation? And I think we do a disservice sometimes in failing to give recommendations, but I think what's really important in giving a recommendation is aligning two important elements. One is what is the most likely outcome going forward from our professional opinion, and the second is what is this person's values? That's why I like to start with who this person is. In order to make the best recommendation, you need to align both of those elements. Most recommendations I see in medicine, when they're offered, and we don't offer them much anymore, but when they are, usually sounds something like, well, you know, if I were you, or if this were my mother, I would probably go home with hospice, not go to a nursing home. And that Because I think the most likely outcome is she's not going to get out of the nursing home. That aligns one element, the most likely outcome, but it aligns your values with that element, not her values. So for me, a recommendation might sound like, you know, from what you told me at the beginning of of this talk was your mom is fiercely independent. Her family is her everything. And I think the most likely outcome here is that if we continue on what we're doing now, she'll end up in a nursing home in the hands and care of others and separated from family. I wouldn't do that. I'd bring her home. I'd surround her as family. And I'd support her with family and with the support of hospice. If that makes sense to you, let's talk about that. And if they say, no, mom's a fighter. She'd like to go to a nursing home. We want to give her another chance. That's fine. It's only a recommendation. I'll help them in whatever direction. My passion, my commitment is to make sure they're making a fully informed decision. And then I'll advocate for that. As long as advocating for that doesn't hurt the patient by our care. We're not obligated to offer care that is going to be harmful to the patient. And the families, when you draw boundaries, almost find relief when you can set
2: some expectations around that teaching. Wow. Having been involved in some of these family caregiving goals at care meetings myself, I wish you were there to take that approach with my family. It sounds really compassionate to the family and those that are involved. Do you have any other advice regarding successful family meetings that we haven't covered already?
0: I think another thing is to recognize the mutuality that's important in these meetings. Sometimes you have to keep a read on the family and the patient and sometimes you can just see them start to glaze over and if you go in with a list of I need to get the code status, I need to get clarity on dialysis, I need to get clarity on pressors," and an ICU transfer like often happens with busy services we need to know this for ourselves if you try to push through all of those boxes to check in a family that's overwhelmed, you're going to entrench them in a bad place and you're going to get bad decisions that even they don't agree with because they're going to make them from a bad uh, space and perspective. If you see them glazed over, I will oftentimes pause and say, are we feeling overwhelmed here? Is this... Am I uh, I'm getting the sense that, that, that you're saturated? Are you feeling that way? And if they say, yeah, I think we need to take a break, then I will. And then I'll say, well, we've still got some important conversations um, to to do, but I want to do this at a pace that's healthy and that you can handle. When do you want to get back together where everybody can be together And, and stop and restart? I think that's a really important element because I've seen some bad outcomes when we've pushed our need to know past the the family's capacity
2: to handle that really good insights indeed again tim dr short i probably should be calling you you're my friend tim i so appreciate you sharing your experience and your expertise and your advice in this matter i think our audience is going to find it extremely valuable and i just really appreciate you joining me on this discussion today my pleasure it's great to be with you stan
1: Thanks for listening. Watch for future episodes of Transcending Home Care on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. For more content, visit transcend-strategy.com.